We're back for part two. This epic marathon of the Yugoslav conflict. It is an epic, isn't it? Literally epic. It's a lot. I didn't really realize how complex this whole thing was until I started doing research. And I was like, (laughs) dang. Like, I knew it was complex, but not like, this is a lot to weave and, and unravel and like unpack. It's a lot. How do you think our listeners feel? Um, they're going to be real confused. Probably, yeah. Like, Hopefully they're fine. Hopefully the map like I wrote helps. a lot of things down and got real confused. So uh, take notes, I guess, is my, <laughs> my suggestion. I don't know. Like, If you have questions that we can try and clear up, if there's anything that is unclear, actually, please post about that on Facebook or contact us because we're happy to try and clarify as best we can. We realize that this is probably extraordinarily hard to follow. Yeah, it's hard for us to follow. Uh, yeah. Just just a reminder on the Facebook page, I did post a map indicating where each of the republics are. So if that issue becomes confusing, just go check out on Facebook. It's right. It's literally right there. It's just in the photos. So yeah. use it to follow along because uh, best you can anyway. Yeah. But uh, today we're going into uh, the Croatian War of Independence, which was the beginning of the major clusterfuck that is the Yugoslav Wars. Yeah. I mean, like, in, in a lot of these, I think pretty much all of these countries essentially had their own little wars of independence, but they all became one giant war, and it was a whole confusing clusterfuck of war. <laughs> Some ethnic cleansing sprinkled in there. Like, Yeah, is... depending on how, the way you look at it, it was either a war in Croatia, in Slovenia, in Bosnia, or it was just a single civil war within... Yugoslavia depends on the way you look at it, but the reality is it was several separate wars that took place over this time. And unfortunately, Croatia is where things get super complicated, and it is also the moment when it is clear that there are no good sides within this conflict whatsoever. And we should also say, because of this, because of the subject matter within this episode, particularly, or and the next episode, particularly, if you're uncomfortable with graphic descriptions of what took place namely genocide uh rape mass rape please bow out now yeah and also concentration camps were a thing they were a thing again uh yeah please bow out now we'll understand if you're well no one's going to be comfortable with it but if you're able to listen kudos to you because this was very difficult to research yeah it was hard I mean, I didn't come across a ton of it personally in my my bits of research, but it's going to get harder, and I know that. Well, I dipped a little bit into Bosnia, and that was difficult because there are photos. Yeah, a lot of photos. Won't be posting photos. Well, I'll post the link if you guys want to see, but trust me, a lot of these you don't want to see, so I'll post the... We'll post links that you can follow at your own risk, but not the actual photos. Yeah, I'm not going to post some of them because it's just too much, but... I will post a link, and it also has a an opinion piece on it. So with that said, we're going to dive into it. So if you haven't bowed out yet, hello. So anyway, here we are. Best place to start is the same place we started last time with uh, the demographics, because demographics is super important to under- in understanding this conflict and how fucked up it was. In Croatia, the demographics were a bit different from Slovenia, whereas Slovenia had a majority Slovenians, 
Croatia also had a majority of Croats, but there's also a large percentage of Serbs, which is why the Serbian Republic was not keen on letting Croatia go. So the demographics in 1991, it was 78.1% Croat. Serbs made up 12.2%, and the remaining 9.7% were classified as others, which included, but were not limited to, Bosniaks slash Muslims, Italians, Albanians, and even 2.2% who classified themselves as Yugoslavs. Another major clash between Serbia and Croatia was that the Croatian population was overwhelmingly Roman Catholic, while the Serbian population was overwhelmingly Orthodox. So during the 10-day war with Slovenia, Croatia was very indecisive of what to do in terms of the conflict. The military leaders wanted to aid Slovenia by attacking the YPA forces and installations within Croatia. Just a reminder, YPA is the Yugoslav People's Army. The other acronym that will be used for that is JNA. JNA, yeah, I found that out. Mm-hmm. I, I use that a lot, so... I okay, that's fine. Keep that one straight, guys. <laughs> Meanwhile, the politicians in Croatia, they were against the idea of militarized attack because they didn't want to damage their reputation to the international community. And they're actually hoping that depending on how well Slovenia does, they were hoping that Serbia would be more willing to negotiate. Regardless, it was obvious that to Croatia that the JNA actions in Slovenia were an indication of how Yugoslavia will react to the other republics bid for independence. And this raised questions as to whether or not the Croatian military was prepared to counter an invasion. There were still hopes that the issue could be resolved through peaceful means with the aid of the international community, particularly the European community or the EC. LOL. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Unfortunately for Croatia, the delay in preparation, it gave the Yugoslav forces an edge in terms of military strength. I mean, they had an edge anyway. But they were, like, better prepared to... to, to the, the, the JNA also had problems with, like, people leaving. Yeah. Like, there's a like, mass exodus of non-Serb troops, basically. Well, if you guys remember in the Slovenia episode, most of the Slovenian soldiers within the JNA just up and left and joined the Slovenian yeah. defense forces. The same thing happened with the Croats. Mm-hmm. Exact same thing happened. Which, which did deplete the JNA's forces. I mean, they at least had equipment. That was really where their major advantage was, too. They did, yes. At the conclusion of the 10-day war, there was an agreement called the Brioni Agreement. The talks were held between July 5th and 7th, 1991 in Brioni, Croatia. And it was a meeting between the representatives of Croatia, Yugoslavia, and Slovenia under the sponsorship of the European community. And it was aimed at formulating an agreement between the three parties of the future of Yugoslavia and their part within it. It ended in an agreement for Slovenian independence and an ending to the 10-day war. So that was when Slovenia was officially recognized by Yugoslavia as independent. Slovenia and Croatia actually agreed to suspend their independence declarations for three months. And Slovenia and Yugoslavia agreed on the borders with each other. However, for Croatia, the, the agreement was not so beneficial because it did not recognize Croatian independence and did not call for the future recognition of Croatian independence. And because of this, the Croatian Prime Minister, Ante Markovic, 
He became diplomatically isolated, and the JNA forces began to refocus their efforts on Croatia. So they were not bogged down in the stupor that was Slovenia anymore, and they could just set all of their eyes on Croatia. So it's not good for Croatia. It's not ideal. No, it's not. About a month and a half after Brioni, Serbian forces were particularly interested in a town directly on the border called Vukovar. And it is a city located on the Danube River, famous river. Mm. And it's eastern border with Serbia. Like, it's literally across the river. So it's literally the front lines between Croatia and Serbia. It's spitting it's distance. Like, at, least, at least it's very clearly marked. Yeah, but it's still spitting distance. Yeah, That's like, the problem. Great. Despite Croatians making up a huge majority within the rest of Croatia... The problem is in Vukovar, it, none of the populations had a majority. It was all a plurality. So the Croatians still had a plurality of 43.93% or 36,910 people. The Serbs made up 37.98% or 31,910. And then the remaining 189 were just listed as other. Of course, this was strategically seen as an important part of what is known as the Serbian Memorandum, which is Greater Serbia. So all the Serbian majority areas within this region that is Yugoslavia should be part of Serbia, which, of course, would make it fucking huge. Now, between 35,000 and 40,000 JNA troops massed into the city, they were led by Lieutenant General Zavota Penic. And Major General Mladen Braddock. They were armed with automatics, anti-tank weapons, APCs, artillery, and tanks. On the Croatian side, there were 1,800 Croatian National Guard and Armed Forces, Police, and Defense Forces armed only with infantry weapons. So only 1,800 people combined. That's it. Good. Yeah. Fighting in and around the city started back in May, but the main battle did not begin until August 24th, with Serbian airstrikes and an artillery barrage. Shells and bombs hit the hospital, the workers' club, Catholic church, and a water tower. If you look on the Facebook, I'm going to have a photo, I, I have a collage posted there. That tower that's on the, the right-hand side, that's the famous water tower. That is basically the symbol of this war. And it still looks like that today, because they're not going to it's basically a memorial. Same how the in Hiroshima, there's the old science museum that's just completely destroyed from the atomic bomb. It's as a symbol of that event. The water tower in Vukovar is a symbol of this horrific and traumatic war. So what the JNA, their plan was a blitzkrieg style attack. So what they were going to do is attempt to capture the city within one day and what their their idea was is to push through with armor and then infantry would come in behind them and then kind of take the surrounding areas and hold them however the first day was an absolute fucking disaster for the jna the croatian forces managed to shoot down two planes and destroyed 10 tanks just with what they had they were using anything they could get their hands on so the JNA leadership, they reworked the plan and started what is known as phase two. And this involved attack by distance. 
I think you can get what that means. It was mostly artillery, tanks, and airplanes that were just barraging the city. And this was an attempt for psychological warfare. And it was in order to break the Croatians into surrendering the moment JNA troops actually moved into the city. It was meant to last a week, but instead it lasted the length of the siege. So until October. So from August until November, sorry. That's pretty intense. intense. I mean, I guess it makes sense in a way too, though, that like even though the, the Croatians were overmatched in a way, I mean, it's pretty important to remember that like all of the people fighting in all of these like independent armies had all probably at some point served in the JNA. Absolutely. So like they were trained in Tito's like guerrilla warfare type tactics and they were trained in all of these because that comes up a bit later in some of their success. Like it, they, they know they might be fighting independently and be seriously underarmed and whatever, but they at least probably at least they understand the same tactics as the people they're fighting against. And that probably is what helps extend the battle rather than make it just a crushing defeat like immediately. <laughs> Well, they also just, the main failure of the JNA was they just completely underestimated the other republics' will to be independent. That as well, yeah, obviously. But just from like a nuts and bolts standpoint, like Mm -hmm. you have a fairly serious advantage when you kind of know exactly what you're fighting for. Yeah, well, and also like you know exactly how the people attacking you are going to attack you. So like you can figure it out. (laughs) It's also the, the... these 1800 soldiers knew the city. Yeah. Like they knew where they, they knew the, everything, every street corner, everything. Mm-hmm. And the JNA forces made up of people like from all the way on the other side of Serbia that had never fucking been here. Mm-hmm. Even like Belgrade, places in Bosnia and places even in areas of Macedonia. And they've never fucking been here. So they have no idea what the layout is whatsoever. No. But I mean, like Tito's, Tito was pretty famous for for leading, like, guerrilla resistance, and he really instilled that in the JNA themselves. And so having knowledge of those kinds of guerrilla warfare tactics mean that having any knowledge of the place that you're fighting in is going to give you, like, a ridiculous advantage. I mean, that was really what happened in Stalingrad, right? Like, the yeah. Russian army knew how to fight in a city, and they knew that city. So yeah, it, just, it just makes it... It gives you, like... It, it changes the playing field, right? It's not, like, a completely level playing field. Even though everything suggests that you're, like gonna get destroyed the playing field's not quite that like even because you have this this like intangible advantage of of kind of knowing their tactics but also yeah just knowing the place you're fighting in yeah and also like the blitzkrieg tactic is not a good tactic for urban warfare because you got these huge bulking tanks that are difficult to maneuver in these narrow streets where any window can be someone with either a Molotov or grenade launcher or anything ready to shoot at you. And then when they start shooting at you, there's very little room to maneuver. So you can't really get out of there. Yeah. This is the same shit has happened in almost every single urban combat situation ever. Between the time that phase two began and the time that it ended, which is November 18th, an average of 12,000 shells were fired into the city every day. Day. So imagine living within that. Every single day, 12,000 shells are falling on your city. And you can't see the enemy because they're over the hill or across the river. Despite all that, the Croatians refused to give up and surrender and they held out, which was shocking to 
basically everyone involved. The JNA made several other mistakes to allow Croatia to hold out, and the main ones was they did not surround Vukovar. So they were getting supplies into Vukovar, such as food, weapons, anything. Isn't that like the first rule of sieges? Like, mm-hmm. close the place off that's why i didn't that's why i didn't call it the siege of vukovar like it's sometimes known because it's really not it really isn't just shelling it and hoping for the best like yeah (laughs) they didn't surround it they were basically on their side of the river just shelling the damn thing (laughs) yeah exactly i mean not that and the fact that they're absolute fucking monsters in a lot of ways well yeah that too but that aside (laughs) yeah for now also, the JNA were not prepared to fight in urban terrain, as we mentioned. So it made the it made the frontal armored assault followed by infantry impossible. Kind of moot. Exactly. Yeah. The Croatian defenders they used what is known as an active defense strategy, which means defenders would make minor offensive operations to keep the attackers on edge. For example, they'd had a series of ten man strike teams mm-hmm. that would conduct surprise attacks on resting and advancing JNA forces with anti tank weapons. They would stall the advance by knocking out tanks and taking out soldiers, like injuring them, so they'd have to like three soldiers would have to carry this injured guy away. And they wouldn't know where they were being shot at from, so it just caused the whole... They turned the psychological warfare around. Another... This is so great. Another thing, the the Croatians had weather rockets. So those rockets you shoot up in the air to test the... I don't know, like test the weather or something? I've never heard of weather rockets, but they sound badass. It's something that... um, They shoot like probes and stuff? Yeah, it's the meteorologists use them. They um, sound badass. Yeah, they have a lot. They had a lot of those. They did fuck all damage, basically, but they were loud when yeah, they... that makes a big difference. Yeah, they were super loud. All it was used for to give the impression to the JNA that Croatia had surface-to-air missiles, mm-hmm. <laughs> which they didn't. Yeah, but, like, things like that are really useful. Like, being just, just like, deceiving your enemy is really important and like noise is a really good way to do that absolutely yeah I, even the like the russians yeah like during sorry to go back to stalingrad like using the katushas like they weren't necessarily the most effective weapon but man they were loud yeah, and they made that scary yeah. sound they called them stalin organs yeah for a reason yeah <laughs> made this really horrible hissing noises when they whereas like these rockets here's the other thing it's like when you see a rocket fire into the air you're not going to be like oh it's a weather yeah. It's a weather like, rocket, oh, shit, especially, a rocket. especially when it's in a battle. Yeah, exactly. Like, like oh, Lindsay. shit, rockets. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is not good. Take cover now. Yeah. And they, again, they were really fucking loud. Yeah. Also, another thing that's important to note is uh, because of the what, JNA forces being so huge was the disadvantage because with only 1,800 defenders within the Croatian side, it was easier to communicate. The chain of command was more... Mm-hmm. known and it was easier to communicate to organize and to it also provide actual personal relationships between the chain of command so these were people that actually cared about each other and respected each other whereas in the jna they were like people that they never like they never see yeah. at all getting orders from command that they never see and whatnot whereas the croatians were actually getting direct eye contact well, orders yeah yeah And the Croatians, I have to say, I have to give them credit here. They fought so bravely, but on November 18th, the battle ended with a Pyrrhic 
Serbian victory, which means it didn't end well. It didn't end well. It was massive amount of casualties, and it really didn't provide much of a significant change. Yeah. And it also ended up doing a lot more damage to the Serbian forces than it did to the Croatians. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Serbs had a lot more to lose, ultimately. Absolutely. And then the Serb casualties, or Yugoslav casualties, rather, were 1,103 killed, including General Braddock, who was killed by anti-tank fire, and 2,500 wounded. On the Croatian side... 879 dead, 770 wounded. Uh, Unfortunately, as it is in a lot of these conflicts, as we've talked about before, the civilians who are fighting on neither side suffered the worst. 1,131 dead. So that's what the 12,000 shells a day accomplished. Some more civilians dead. The JNA forces were effectively exhausted for the remainder of the conflict, and they could not put up a a bigger fight for the remainder of the, not just the Croatian War of Independence, but the the rest of the whole conflict. Yeah, I feel like past this point, most of the the good fighting from Serbs was from the Serb Republic of Croatia. Yeah. In this battle, yeah. And you'll find out who was in Bosnia next episode. There's also a lot of video and photos taken of the conflict. This is like one of the first times that... Yeah. I mean, it's a modern war, right? Yeah. A really modern war. Well, not not the first time like it was like bought battles like that, like photos like and video that was taken in a battle like that in a modern war, but it was the first time in Yugoslavia that it was. Yeah. And because of these videos of the battle, it actually increased opinion for the Croatian side and diminished it heavily for Yugoslavia. Croatian President Franjo Tuđman famously said, quote, This is how we successfully turned the international community on our side and finally achieved international recognition for Croatia. Yeah, that definitely changes, though, because he makes some pretty critical mistakes. He does. <laughs> Franjo Tuđman is not a good guy. Not the best, poli- <laughs> not the best politician, either. No. Like, really not good in any sense of anything. I mean, yeah. Sorry, Croatians who support him, but... Kind of fucked up. Yeah, he, he's very... You'll find out. Everyone was fucked up. Unfortunately, this the ending of this battle also was the start of the atrocities throughout the Yugoslav Wars. And on November, between the 18th and 20th, a bunch of people who were suspected to have worked with the Croatian forces were rounded up and taken all sorts of places to prison camps and whatnot. Well, one particular thing is Vukovar's hospital had 450 patients, and the Red Cross were desperately trying to get in there to make sure these all these patients were removed safely. Mm-hmm. Well, the Yugoslav forces wouldn't let them in. Of course they wouldn't. No. And they were just not allowed to enter the city whatsoever. Well, the JNA, they moved the patients to several nearby barracks and then had the hospital staff point out who were actually regular patients and those were thankfully returned to the hospital. But they also pointed out who weren't. Like who were casualties of the fighting? Yes, exactly. Who were casualties who were hiding, 
Not like not like civilians, but like people who active combatants who were. Yeah, but you got like one thing you got to remember: a lot of these people fighting were just regular civilians. Yeah, but like combatants. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, combatants. Now the remainder were taken to a farm uh, in a place called Ovkara, and members of the Croatian Serb Territorial Defense Leva Superdekia paramilitary and members of the JNA itself killed 200 people and buried them in a mass grave at the farm. And it was left. No one knew what happened to these people until a year later in October, 1992 by an American forensic anthropologist named Clyde Snow. He was just there on a visit to Zagreb, to the Zagreb university, which is the capital of Croatia. Super random time to be going to Zagreb too. Like, I know. Yeah, it's happened. I know, it's just weird. <laughs> it just never gets less weird. <laughs> right. While he was there, he was introduced to a soldier who said he survived the massacre, and he actually told uh, Snow this, the location of where it happened. And while he was accompanied by our Royal Canadian Mounted Police Sergeant Larry Moore, they traveled together to where the site was, and they discovered a human skull in the mud. So the UN declared the site a crime scene and it was guarded by Russian peacekeepers while it was being excavated. That's yeah. a good segue. Yeah, so I guess this is where the, the men in the blue helmets come in. Um, men and women, I guess. Uh, so most people at least, I think, understand the Yugoslav conflict really because of the peacekeeping mission that took place there. Or at least know about it because it's really that and Rwanda were the two biggest conflicts that kind of started to bring questions about the effectiveness of peacekeepers and what their role actually should be or whatever. So yeah, the UN Protection Force or UN Prefor, as I'm going to call it, (laughs) um, was the UN peacekeeping mission in Croatia and Bosnia during the Yugoslav Wars. Also just like heads up, there's going to be a ton of acronyms coming up and getting thrown at your face really soon. And so buckle up. Because with every UN action, there is like 9,000 acronyms to keep straight. So the first one is UN Profor, UN Protection Force. The UN became actively involved in the situation in Yugoslavia as early as 1991, when the Security Council unanimously adopted its Resolution 713, expressing deep concern about the fighting in that country and calling on all states to implement immediately a general and complete embargo on all deliveries of weapons and military equipment to Yugoslavia. Because it's actually kind of important to note that a lot of countries were giving equipment to countries like Croatia and Slovenia and those militaries, like uh, they were using tanks given to them by Germans and vice versa. So the Croatians were kind of scavenging leftover JNA stuff that like they abandoned or whatever, but also did have access to some newer weapons from countries like actually Germany was pretty involved in selling the weapons. Can I point something out real yeah. quick? Uh, Ger- a lot of the European community envoy blamed Germany for escalating the conflict because they were the first country to actually recognize both Slovenia and Croatia. And, yeah, and provided them some arms too. I mean, whether or not you really hold that against them is, I guess, a different story because that's really a common thing now. Like, real peaceful countries sell a lot of guns to not peaceful countries. <laughs> Canada being one of them. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so on October 8th, 1991, the Secretary General appointed Cyrus Vance, a former U.S. Secretary of State, as his personal envoy for Yugoslavia. And the Secretary General's personal envoy is essentially just like an investigative team. It's headed by somebody who, usually a pretty high-ranking diplomat and somebody with a lot of foreign policy experience, so a former Secretary of State would, you know, count. 
So the personal envoy undertook several missions to Yugoslavia and discussed with all parties concerned. So the JNA, the Croats, the Serbs, the Slovenians, the European community, as well as like the United States and other members of the UN. Yeah, they talked to everybody, literally everyone, <laughs> about, among other things, the feasibility of deploying a UN peacekeeping operation. On November 23rd, 1991, the personal envoy convened in Geneva, and there was a meeting which was attended by the presidents of Serbia and of Croatia and the Secretary of State for National Defense of Yugoslavia, as well as Lord Carrington, who Jonah mentioned a little bit earlier. And on the 27th of November, 1991, the Security Council passed Re Resolution 721, which approved the efforts of the Secretary General and his personal envoy and endorsed the statement made by the personal envoy to the parties that the deployment of a UN peacekeeping operation in Yugoslavia could not be envisaged without the full compliance of all parties with the Geneva Agreement. So essentially it's a resolution saying like, yeah, we can't do a peacekeeping mission until everyone agrees. <laughs> More or less. Seems like a waste of time, but anyway, more resolutions to come. On December 15th, Resolution 724 approved the Secretary General's report, which contained a plan for a possible peacekeeping operation. And then, <laughs> on February 21st, 1992, UN PERFOR was officially created by UN Security Council Resolution 743. And this was really after the Croatian War of Independence had begun. So... Clearly, their previous efforts had failed to really do anything. The European community, their try, their engagement was obviously a fairly large failure in that sense. They couldn't stop anything, so the UN was like, okay, I guess we'll get involved now. And they'd been monitoring the situation for a while anyway. The council confirmed that the force should be an interim arrangement to create the conditions of peace and security required for the negotiation of an overall settlement of the Yugoslav crisis within the framework of the European Community's Conference on Yugoslavia. So, like all peacekeeping forces, it's meant to be a temporary measure to help bring warring parties to an agreement and stop stop actual conflict, because nothing good happens during actual conflict. It's literally just an attempt to bring everybody to the table. UN Prefor was composed of nearly 39,000 personnel from 42 different nations, including Canada, France, the United States, the Russian Federation, the United Kingdom, Germany, and Australia, as well as com countries like Sweden, Germany, or sorry, I already mentioned Germany, Sweden, Norway, <laughs> Ghana, uh, India, a lot of different places, obviously. There were several commanders of UN before, all of them. They served at different periods, but they were Lieutenant General Satish Nambiar of India, Lieutenant General Lars-Erik Volgren of Sweden, General Jean Cove of France, General Bertrand de Sovia de la Presse, I, wow, my French is terrible, dude with a really long name, from France, and also General Bernard Janvier of France. So lots of French generals. Uh, and I think the French made up a really large contingent of peacekeepers. And uh, I believe that UN Perfor was the last peacekeeping mission in which Canada actually supplied one of the majority of troops and equipment. It was, one of, it was pretty much like the last really major peacekeeping operations Canada ever really participated in until recently i believe yeah but i think that even then our involvement is still smaller but yeah I, I, yeah the initial mandate of un before was to ensure conditions for peace talks as i said and provide security in three demilitarized safe havens designated as un protection areas and this is acronym number 5000 unpa and these are, were located in various regions all over croatia at the time anyways the original UN plan in Croatia rested on two central elements, the first being the withdrawal of the JNA from all of Croatia and the demilitarization of the UNPA. 
And the second element was the continuing functioning on an interim basis of the existing local authorities and police under UN supervision pending the achievement of all of an overall political solution to the crisis. So ultimately just once the fighting stops <laughs> and some demilitarizing happens, allowing the leaders of the respective countries to work it out, but with supervisors, <laughs> with babysitters, basically, <laughs> to make sure they don't start fighting again. <laughs> I mean, that kind of trivializes the role, but it's an important role. You can't just, like, stop the fighting, demilitarize, and then be like, okay, bye, and see, you know, let them see what happens, because they're probably going to go back to fighting. The mandate, ultimately, of UN before in Croatia was to ensure that the UNPAs were demilitarized through the withdrawal or, or disbandment of all armed forces in them, and that all persons residing in them are protected from fear of attack. So as Jonah said, there was a lot of attacks on civilians. Civilians were not necessarily just collateral damage, but like actively targeted in some cases too. It was a, a major part of the mandate was to protect those people as well. And uh, in terms of disbandment of all forces, um, as we also said, most of these forces were really just like partisan forces. They weren't even really real armies. They were just like militias. So there was a number of different forces engaged in these conflicts. It wasn't just like multiple, you know, nations, armies c conflicting. There was a couple of different little groups. So to this end, the U or UN Prefor was authorized to control access to the UNPAs to ensure that the UNPAs remained demilitarized and to monitor the functioning of the local police there to help ensure that non-discrimination and the protection of human rights. The Croatian police force, as I'll talk about a little bit later, was pretty involved in a lot of the nastiest human rights abuses in this conflict. So supervision of the police was important, <laughs> even if at the time the mandate didn't really know that that was going to be the case, but I think it's always generally the case. Outside of the UNPAs, UN performed military observers were there to verify the withdrawal of all JNA and irregular forces from Croatia, other than those disbanded and demobilized there. In support of the work of the humanitarian agencies of the UN, UN Perfor was also to facilitate the return and conditions of safety and security of civilian displaced persons to their homes in the UNPAs. So it was a pretty large mandate, and it got expanded a couple of times as well. In 1992, the mandate was expanded to so-called quote-unquote pink zones, controlling access to UNPAs, some border control and monitoring of civilian access to pink zones, and control of the demilitarization of the Pravlaka Peninsula near Dubrovnik. So the pink zones were essentially just like, there's zones just outside of UNPAs that they needed to control to ensure the safety of the UNPAs. So they were still, they were pink because they were ultimately hot zones still, like that's where conflict really took place. So that's essentially the bare bones of what the mandate of the UN was and the fact that the UN showed up and they're going to be involved in some conflicts here and there. No, yeah, and again... Can't stress enough, there were no good sides in this fucking conflict. Even the UN really was questionable at times. Like, Yeah, well, I don't... They're, they're the good guys. They didn't actively commit any atrocities. It's just that they also didn't stop a few. <laughs> well, their rules of engagement is complete bullshit. Yeah. Ultimately, what was learned in this conflict, and we'll talk about it probably kind of when we wrap up the whole little series, is that the UN was made obsolete. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> like this conflict and actually Rwanda really showed the limitations of the peacekeeping method and current, the well, current at the time. Yeah. To prove my point that there are no good sides, our point rather, during the Battle of Vukovar, there is a, another area further into Serbia and Karenia called 
Gospic. And between October 17th and 25th, 1991, several atrocities took place. Many Serbian civilians were taken prisoner by the 118th Brigade of the Na- Croatian National Guard, the Gospic police, and, the, and several Croatian paramilitaries within the area. Witnesses to, in Gospic, they said they witnessed seeing prisoners being rounded up onto trucks and taken away and never seen again. What happened is these civilians were taken to bomb shelters in the surrounding area and between 100 and 120 were murdered by firing squad, mostly at the Perisic barracks. Not not great. (laughs) No, absolutely not. A lot of atrocities. Those were the two worst. The Vukovar massacre and Gospic massacre were the worst during Croatia. But there were more. They pretty much pale in comparison to what happened in Bosnia, though. Absolutely. But unlike Bosnia, this is, this is why, where I kind of call bullshit, because it is bullshit. The International Court stated that these massacres did not constitute as genocide. Yeah, the, uh, the criminal court, there was a few things in Croatia that made the criminal court situation like really messy. In terms of prosecuting, just because, like, um, I'm going to get to it actually a little bit here uh, in the next little segment. But there was a lot of instances where they, like, just had no good way to actually prove it. And when I say that, it's not necessarily that it didn't happen and they're not denying that it ha- didn't happen. They're not saying it didn't happen. It was just, like, the one instance that after Medak actually it was, like, there was clearly some kind of mass killing, but, like... It's really hard to prove any real reason for it, and they're like it, it for whatever reason didn't seem to classify under the definition of genocide that the UN sets out. Also, I think that this conflict also showed that the definition of genocide that the UN sets out is like purposely really hard to meet because nobody wants to classify things as genocide if they really don't have to. We even see that currently in Darfur. The reluctance of people to call something genocide is really strong because. It just has implications that no one wants to invoke, even when they should be. Logically, it's there. Yeah, yeah. It's just that, like, the legal definition that they've established, for whatever reason, is one that nobody really wants to, like, use. Because if we don't use it, then it's not happening, right? Mm -hmm. It's easier to turn your head away. Yeah. That was a problem in Croatia, especially, too, because of the, the tactics that Croatians took to cover it up a little bit as well. Made it extraordinarily hard to physically actually prove, like anything speaking of genocide yeah i'm gonna talk to talk a little bit more about that so the medak pocket is what i'm gonna talk about now a little bit the reason that the medak pocket is uh important is that it was one of the bigger clashes between un troops and combatants from croatia and serbia to some extent and shout out to martin woods who is uh somebody that i met while i was working in my town, and he actually is a veteran of this conflict, so shout out to him for bringing it to our attention a little bit more and being really helpful in providing some some sources, some resources, and just his own experiences. When September seventeenth was one of the anniversaries the of the 20, Medak Pocket, twenty fifth anniversary, I believe. Yes. Yeah. So he he has shared some stories with us that you know we never expect any veteran to have to share, and we appreciate his input. It was really helpful. So, anyways, on that note. At the time, much of the interior of Croatia, uh, the Lika region, Lika region, anyways, was captured by forces of the self-proclaimed Republic of Serb-Krajina, the RSK, 
and the Serb-dominated Yugoslav People's Army, the JNA, during 1991. Uh, and in, in Lika, I'm super saying that wrong, and I apologize. But anyways, in Lika, almost all of the Croatian population in the Serb-held area were killed or expelled or forced to seek refuge in government-held areas, while Serbs continued the shelling of Gospić. A ceasefire was agreed to in January 1992 with the Sarajevo Agreement, and UN perfor- was installed to police the armistice lines, act as negotiators, aid workers, and combat soldiers. So, you know, jacks of all trades, I guess, in wartime. So, But despite this, um, sporadic sniping and shelling continued to take place between the two sides. Uh, Gospic was repeatedly subjected to shell fire from the, the Serb Army of Krajina, the SVK, because more Serb combatants with weird acronyms. Like, it's really confusing. That town was important, like Gospic was important, because it was in a communication line between Zagreb, Dalmatia, and uh, Rijeka, another town. So basically, Gospic was really important in terms of communication between Zagreb and other outpostings. Much of the shelling that took place of Gospic took place from the Serb-controlled Medak pocket, which is an area of high ground near Medak, Croatia. The pocket adjoined Sector South, which was one of the four UNPAs in Croatia. If the pocket was not actually in the UNPA, it was in a so-called pick zone, which was RSK-held territory outside the UNPA, but it was patrolled by UN Perfor peacekeepers. So prior to Medak, Croatian government forces had launched several relatively small-scale attacks to retake rebel Serb-held territory in these pink zones in June 1992 and at the Maslencia Bridge in January 1993, and Maslencia Bridge is important because essentially what happened is it was guarded by French peacekeepers and the Croats fired at them and the French ran away, basically. <laughs> the, the UN decided to abandon ship and so the Croats were able to retake the Maslencia Bridge. But in the process, the UN lost some credibility in terms of failing to do its job, which was a theme in this conflict because of reasons regarding... Uh, rules of engagement, and also just the scope of what peacekeeping is, I guess. And most peacekeepers were relatively unarmed. So yeah, anyways, Maslenzia was also saying that wrong, I'm sure. But anyway, important because it was a, a huge blow to the UN's credibility, but also kind of a, a galvanizing win for the Croats in a sense too, because they felt at that point that, hey, if we just shoot really strate- strategically at UN peacekeepers, not necessarily to kill them, but if we shoot in their direction, they'll get scared and run away, and we can keep going. Essentially, it was the end of the Croatians taking peacekeepers seriously. So the Croatian forces began their offensive on September 9th, 1993, and the attack involved 2,500 troops from the Croatian Army's Gospic operational zone. The Croatians were largely armed with equipment that they had captured from the JNA, like I mentioned, but they were also had access to M84 tanks, which I believe were provided by the Germans. The SVK was taken by surprise and they fell back. They were largely just a militia, like a guerrilla force anyways. And after two days of fighting, the Croatian forces had taken control of SVK-held territory and a new front line ran just in front of the village of Medak. And the, the tactics that the Croatians used were really like rudimentary and kind of crude. They weren't really advanced military tactics, but they still worked because ultimately the SVK was not much. <laughs> and yeah it it worked <laughs> but in retaliation the serb forces began to use long-range artillery to shell the city of karlovac and fired missiles at zagreb the svk launched other counterattacks, and there was fighting but the offensive attracted some strong international criticism and 
facing political and military pressure back home, the Croatian government agreed to cease fire. As I said when we were talking about the Croatian president, how he, you know, wasn't a very good politician, this was one of those moves. He was essentially firing at an area that was kind of not supposed to be fired at, I guess. And so they decided to sign a ceasefire, and the ceasefire was signed by General Mile Novakovic on behalf of the Serbians and Major General Pitar Stipetic on behalf of the Croatians. And the Croatian withdrawal was scheduled for 12 p.m. on September 15th. So this is going to get a little bit confusing in terms of chronology because I'm going to go back and talk about the UN Perfor Force here leading up to this point, and then we'll kind of meet in the middle. In response, I guess, to the ceasefire and to make sure that it actually this withdrawal actually took place, UN Perfor sent 875 troops of the 2nd Battalion Princess Patricia's Light Infantry Battle Group to move into the pocket, accompanied by two French Army mechanized units. The UN forces were under the command of Lieutenant Colonel James Kelvin, and they were instructed to interpose themselves between the Serb and the Croat forces, so essentially create like a human barrier. And at the time, it's kind of important, I guess, to talk here too about prior to their arrival in the South Sector, the general relationship between Croats and Canadian peacekeepers was pretty poor. Members of other UN Perfor battalions told Croatian authorities that almost all Canadians have hostile attitude towards Croatians. So in the eyes of Croatian soldiers, Serbs were perceived as friendly, while Croats were perceived as cold, whether or not this is, I guess, the real case. I mean, I think this is all kind of hearsay as well. So, But it's it's important to still mention it because I, I don't want to... We are, we are Canadians, so it's, you don't want to come across as having a bias in this particular situation because nobody, as we said, was really good in this in this conflict. But apparently in a town of Darvar, a Croatian group called, quote, the, or called the Lakers looted and assaulted UN Perfor personnel. Canadians considered Krajina, quote, as a region with special rights populated exclusively by Serbs, while Croatian President Tujman was seen as the biggest nationalist. And due to this animosity, several cases were recorded in which Croats referred to Canadian soldiers as Chetniks, while Canadians dubbed Croats as Neanderthals and primitive peasants. So, like, super positive relationship to go into this with. Not going to be problematic at all. Anyways, yeah, so back to the the second Princess Patricia's Light Infantry. Of the 875 members of their battle group, only 375 actually were from that group. 165 came from other regular force units. And the remainder consisted of 385 reserve soldiers who had volunteered from militia units across Canada. So, in fact, reserve soldiers made up 75% of the rifle company during the mission. The second PPCLI battle group in Croatia contained the highest concentration of reserve soldiers on an operational mission to date, which is important in terms of just how the group functioned. And a big part of their undertaking was really just unit cohesion. The two PPCLI were training in Winnipeg first and then in California, and then they were finally sent to Croatia at the end of March in 1993. Canadian battalions operated with their full complement of warfighting weaponry and equipment. So Canada was among the first member nations to deploy blue-helmeted soldiers with this kind of firepower when UN Perfor was first deployed to Croatia in 92. And this was definitely met with some not great reactions by other member countries. They felt that Canada could potentially be provoking, like, are you really peacekeeping if you bring tanks kind of thing? Um, (laughs) Was more or less the reaction by some member countries, but the fact that they were so heavily armed is also why Jean Co, or the General Co, wanted... He wanted the two PPCLI involved because they were the most well-armed and also most well-equipped to generally deal with this, the, con- or the conflict because they had a reputation for being tough but fair in all of the areas that they had managed. 
they did things a little bit differently, but managed to keep control over areas better because they were, they were tough. But at the end, they were fair to everybody. They just didn't take anybody's shit, <laughs> essentially. So they were in a different UNPA for a while. And so after five months of that kind of training, coupled with some hands-on practice, because they were involved in a few like skirmishes here and there, they weren't really anything serious, but just you know, capturing combatants, like sneaking a, sneaking onto their territory and vice versa, whatever, just little things like that. So they had five months to become a real unit, not just patchwork of reserves and others. And they became one of the most effective and respected units in all of the UN before. And so Jean Co selected them to move to Sector South to undertake one of the most difficult, difficult assignments, which was policing this withdrawal from the Medak pocket. So under the terms of cease, the ceasefire agreement between the Serb and Croat forces, Croat forces would withdraw from many of the territories gained in the Mislencia offensive. So when they retook that bridge and the UN lost credibility. So General Ko anticipated that Croatian troops would be reluctant to withdraw from their hard-won gains, which he was ultimately correct. And it makes sense. You know, they fought pretty hard for that. And we're dealing with like highly nationalist so like forces. Like it's a pretty emotionally charged situation. It's not just like any other battle. Like this is really charged conflict. So giving up any territory is like not good. And so he anticipated that, which is why he ultimately sent the Canadians because they had guns, um, lots of them. And uh, yeah, they were sent to implement the agreement and restore the UN presence in the South sector. And one report says that Co expected and actually kind of even like a little bit hoped for some trouble between the Canadians and the Croatians. Well, the UN perforce, so also including his own or two French army units as well, but mostly the Canadians. He was hoping for a little bit of trouble because he wanted to win back some of the credibility that the UN had lost at Mislencia. You know, if the UN can really pull off a victory here and, and hold off, like and successfully oversee this withdrawal and whatever, then they'll respect us again. And the UN not being respected was a really large part of why a lot of, like, ethnic cleansing took place. And just a lot of events happened because they were like, well, we don't really respect you, so we're going to do it anyways. Stop us. Like, until you stop us, we're going to keep doing it. So on September 9th, as UN elements moved into Medak, the Croatian 9th Leica Wolves Guards Brigade commenced its assault on the salient section of the front known as the Medak Pocket. So right as the UN was starting to, like, yeah, send people, the Croats attacked again. <laughs> the a preliminary barrage on Serb defenses in the Medak pocket commenced as lead elements of the two PPCLI were moving up to the front through the Serb rear area in preparation to implement the ceasefire agreement. In previous altercations, the UN forces had pretty much jumped ship as soon as they were facing well-placed fire, not just, you know, any gunfire, but, like, accurate gunfire um, by Croat forces. And so the Croat forces thought the same would happen in this instance, but it definitely did not. As uh, Croat armor pushed down the main road along the valley between Gospic and Grisac, a Croat light infantry force operating in the mountains in the south moved to close off the Medak pocket from the opposite direction. The even more poorly, poorly organized and equipped serve defense collapsed under the crude but effective onslaught. So ultimately uh, there was heavy fighting and the Canadians were kind of stuck, like, in the middle of it. And the Croats expected Canadians to bail at this point, but the Canadians kind of stayed, and any break in shelling, the Canadians reinforced their position. they just add more sandbags and shit. Uh, like, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> um, so for 
a reference at least for Canadians. The area that this fell in was around the size of Parliament Hill in Ottawa. So it's not a huge area. Not small, but not huge. It's, it's pretty small. Um, so that's essentially the Canadians like stayed put and did their thing. The Croats expected their barrage to drive off the UN, but Serb reinforcements actually also poured into the Midak pocket, and that was one of the biggest criticisms of the Croatians against the Canadians, was that, yeah, the Canadians are here, and sure, we were firing at them, but they still let more Serbs come in, whereas they're not supposed to be doing that. Like, they thought that the Canadians were clearly, like, not a neutral force. They were allowing the Serbs to bring in reinforcements, so fuck them. <laughs> kind of hard to police that when you're shooting at them. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but... That was a that was a thing. There was a cause of tension that they're like, well, they weren't really being neutral because they let more Serbs come, and it's like, yeah, but you you were shooting at them, guys. Like, <laughs> let's be real here. Anyway, so fighting basically raged on into a bitter stalemate for like two days, um, until Serb artillery opened fire on the Croatian city of Karlovac, as I mentioned, and uh, also fired on Zagreb, as I also mentioned earlier. And this is kind of where things come back to the middle. My weird chronological story here. So Serb retaliation, coupled with growing pressure from the international community, was enough to convince Chijman to abandon that offensive. They signed the peace agreement. It was called the Medak Pocket Agreement, and it was signed on September 13th. It was actually, sorry, a verbal agreement, but it was signed into effect. Um, and it would be reinforced by the Canadian battle group that was now there to <laughs> make sure that it happened. So, like, there's a lot of peace agreements here. None of them have really worked so far, if you're following. Uh, and this peace agreement was, like, the one, I guess, yeah, signed by Stipetic and uh, Novakovic <laughs> on the Serbian side, sorry, uh, was really controversial for the Croatians. It was brought to Stipetic by another general who, as Stipetic was signing it, this general said that he would never have signed that agreement. And Stipetic is like, get fucked, signing it anyway. And, like, uh, there was a lot of tension and a lot of, it was obviously not, popular amongst Croatian troops. They were really upset that they had signed this ceasefire agreement because they wanted to keep fighting. And it was rumored that, or not really rumored, but some Croatian commanders told Stipetic that he better not come through their territory because his soldiers wanted to kill him. Like, he was that. It was that bad, basically. So the new withdrawal agreement was to be implemented in four phases. The two PPCLI's Charlie Company and one French company would make the first step of occupying Serbian frontline positions on the 15th of September. Phase 2 would see Charlie Company, under the watchful eyes of the anti-armor platoon, establish a crossing point in the no-man's land between the opposing armies on the main paved road running the length of the valley floor. In Phase 3, Delta Company and the second French, French company from Freebat, <laughs> the French battalion, would move along the road through the secure crossing point and on to occupy the forward Croatian positions. Two PPCLI's reconnaissance platoon and the battalion tactical headquarters would follow Delta Company into the pocket. The last step would be to oversee the Croatian withdrawal to their pre-September 9th positions, thereby completing the separation of forces and establishing a new demilitarized zone. In the hours prior to the operation, General Coe actually personally flew to the area to speak to Colonel Kelvin, essentially taking overall command of the operation and eliminating the link to South or Sector South headquarters in uh, Knin. So essentially closed the lines of communication because too much was riding on this to have any delay in reporting commands and stuff like that. So Co also indicated that the details of the Medak pocket agreement had not likely made it from Zagreb down to the front line Croatian soldiers yet. So he strongly implied that force may have to be used to ensure their compliance with the agreement. He reminded Calvin that the UN rules of engagement allowed the blue-helmeted Canadian and French 
troops to return fire in kind if they or their mandate were threatened. The mission was clear and the stage was set. Large UN flags were fixed to radio antennae. <laughs> like, they basically made it as obvious as possible that they were from the UN. And so as they're approaching on September 15th, they start coming under small arms fire and machine gun fire from Croatian lines. And so they're like, okay, maybe they don't know we're the UN. So they put flags and shit up everywhere and it did not get better. <laughs> it actually brought more fire from the Croats, including heavy machine gun fire and rocket, rocket propelled grenades and a 20, mil, 20 millimeter anti-aircraft gunfire. Apparently announcing you're from the UN actually creates more harm for you than like the other way around. So it was now obvious that the Croatians had like zero intention of letting the Canadians advance and were not interested in this ceasefire agreement. All along the Charlie and uh, French battalion, three co- or third companies, the blue helmets halted basically in whatever defensive positions they could find. And for the next 15 hours, the Croatians shot it out with Canadian and French troops. It was just like they had a firefight. And it wasn't really a battle, I guess, by the standards of Western armies. <laughs> like it battles. was a battle. Yeah. I mean, by like the standards of, of Western armies where positions are attacked with fire and movement, like it wasn't a battle, but because there were no infantry assaults or sweeping tank thrusts, like it was basically just a firefight. <laughs> and part of that is because in this area, weapons were plentiful in the region, but soldiers weren't. <laughs> Especially soldiers who were trained in any kind of capacity. <laughs> so like, you're not going to throw humans at the problem when you don't have a lot of them. So anyways, by the Balkan definition, it was a battle, but in reality, it was really just a firefight. And it kind of like led to this like Mexican standoff, essentially. <laughs> Uh, which is great. Yeah, it lasted, the firefights lasted all night and early into the next morning, and then during the night, a bunch of brass essentially arrived from Zagreb to try and talk down the Croatians. And a operational zone commander on the Croatian side, General Ladimi, who is basically like the equivalent to a NATO Corps commander, he was late. He came and met with Colonel Kelvin and some others, and uh, the Mexican standoff kind of continued. But after much heated dist- discussion Ademi agreed to not resist phase two and part of what led to this actually (laughs) was that there was a bunch of press traveling with the Canadians and so Calvin decided like may as well put him to work and brought him to the front and had a press conference essentially saying that the Croatians were stopping the Canadians from doing from executing their mandate of you know disarming the conflict, et cetera, and essentially humiliated the Croatians on to the press. And so the Croatians were finally like, fine. <laughs> and so they backed off a little bit. So after, yeah, so after this press conference and a lot of heated discussion, Ademi agreed to not resist phase two and that the Canadians could establish the crossing point that night without Croatian interference. Phase three would commence at 12 p.m. the following day when Delta Company would pass through the crossing point and move into the Canadian, or sorry, the Croatian trench line. But the next day, and this is kind of where the Croatian human rights violations happen, the Patricias uh, rose to the site of a lot of smoke rising from several villages behind the Croatian lines. Uh, There was explosions and occasional bursts of automatic rifle fire, and it suddenly became clear kind of why the Croatians had resisted the Canadian advance. Their theory was that those villages... Because those villages were inhabited predominantly by Serbs, the theory was that the Croatian special police were not finished cleansing them yet, and that's why the Croatians were stalling, essentially. And Calvin wanted to to act on this, and he called a French colonel to meet with General Ademi, but with only, like, 
for widely separated companies and like no support basically in the form of tanks or artillery, Kelvin's force basically had no chance. So they couldn't do anything. Even if the Canadians had had the strength, it would have been out of the scope of their mandate. So they just were limited by rules of engagement at, at the very least, even if they'd had all of the tanks in the world to fight. So basically they sat there and waited while shooting and explosions went on in um, villages. So Delta Company rolled ahead on schedule and they ran into another Croatian roadblock. <laughs> and actually, I think this was, sorry, this is actually where the press conference was. It was at the second roadblock. Okay. My bad. So second roadblock, there's the press conference. <laughs> yeah, so there was, I think, like 20 journalists or something. And eventually Calvin was sick of this shit because they were also sure that Croat officer Brigadier General Mezic was stalling again to give Croatian special police the time they needed to destroy any evidence of ethnic cleansing. So Calvin's like, fuck it, and took a gamble and brought the journalists up and had a press conference and told the reporters that Croatian policemen were ethnically cleansing and then cleaning up, and that's why they weren't allowed through. So the Croats were like, okay, you can come, it's fine. <laughs> like, no, no worries, our bad. And uh, yeah, so the, they were on the move. And the ploy was ultimately too late, unfortunately, like the press conference was too late to stop any ethnic cleansing of Serb villages in the Medak pocket, but it did allow the Blue Helmets to reach most of the villages before all traces of the atrocities could be erased. So they did find some evidence. Um, Blood trails. Not even a lot of that, honestly. A lot of what they actually found, they found, they only found like 16 bodies in total, ever. But they did find a lot of rubber surgical gloves, which they claimed had to be evidence. But there's no real way to prove that it wasn't also investigators using gloves to, you know, because you're going to wear gloves when you're dealing with this. So that's why there was never really any. There was, they were prosecuted kind of, but it was never, it was hard to prove. Anyways, what they did find, though, was that the Croatians had leveled everything when they withdrew. It was like a score. They took a scorched earth policy and just like wrecked everything. They blew everything up. They burned everything down. Truckloads of firewood had been brought in to start intense fires among wooden buildings. Brick and concrete buildings were blown apart with explosive and anti-tank mines. And the Croatians completed their task by killing almost all the livestock in the area, which was what the small arms fire they had heard actually was. It wasn't killing people. It was killing animals. So in addition to that, those dead animals and oil, if they had it, were dumped into wells to make them unusable for Serbs who were trying to entertain any thought of returning. So that was actually most of the crime that Adimi and his forces were actually charged with was like the unwanted destruction of everything, um, basically. So they only found 16 Serb bodies and they were scattered in hidden locations. The open ground was littered with rubber surgical gloves. Calvin and his men believed the gloves indicated that most of the Serb dead were transported elsewhere. And a mass grave containing over 50 bodies was later located in the vicinity. The bodies recovered included those of two young women found in a basement, and they had apparently been tied up, shot, and doused with gasoline and burned. And when they were found, the bodies were still hot enough to melt the plastic body bags. Yeah. Um, at another location, an elderly Serb woman had been found shot four times in the head, execution style. While the job of gathering evidence may have been the most difficult for the Canadians, which haunted a lot of those young soldiers, like, still, uh, it was of critical importance. Um, the Midak pocket provided the world with the first hard evidence that Serbia, although probably the largest, was not the sole perpetrator of ethnic cleansing in the Balkans. 
Um, also, for the meticulous Canadian procedures used to sweep and record evidence in the area, that became the standard for UN Perfor, perhaps in providing some degree of deterrence to those who may fear being called before war crimes tribunals. Medak did what Co wanted it. It did restore UN Perfor credibility, resulting in new dialogue between, leading to informal ceasefire in November, a more formal and wider one at Christmas, and a bilateral, quote unquote, Universal ceasefire signed in Zagreb on the 29th of March, 94. But Medak didn't go far enough in wiping away the memory of Mislencia because the Canadians may have documented Croat war crimes, but they could not stop them. So it added to more a sense of insecurity among Serbs that ultimately, like, yeah, we can uncover them, but we can't stop it. And that was, I think, the biggest problem that the UN overall faced carte blanche in this conflict was just the, like, yeah, but... You can't stop it, and that's what we really need you for. <laughs> like, like I mean, still even a lot of controversy kind of surrounding Medak because the Croats obviously deny that it really happened. <laughs> um, but honestly, even the Canadians kind of denied that it was really a thing until recently. Like, it wasn't that it was a denial. It was that it was mostly, like, not talked about. It was never really acknowledged in any report other than just being, like, brief altercation kind of thing. It was never given the language that actually suggested that it was... um like a real thing, I guess. So it's always been referred to as Canada's secret battle because it was an event that challenged the skill and discipline of an army that hadn't deployed like formed units to fight a full-scale battle for almost 40 years. So it was a good test, but it was ultimately one that no one really talked about. I think because you don't really want like a lot of discussion of UN peacekeepers like actively fighting against people, I guess, because then it's like, is it really peacekeeping? The war crimes investigations basically... There was a trial for Ademi. He was put on trial. General Bobetko, he was the general who brought the ceasefire to Stipetech, and Bobetko is the one who said, like, oh, I would never sign this. He was the highest ranking in Daidi, but he died before the case was ever made it to court, so it was cancelled. The wider area was under the jurisdiction of the Gospich Military District, which was commanded by Brigadier Rahim Ademi, and he was indicted by the criminal court and transferred there in 2001 and 2004. Miko Norach, who was also serving a 12-year sentence for his role in the Gospich massacre, was also indicted and transferred to The Hague. Uh, the two cases were joined, and it began in 2007. So and it resulted in a first-degree verdict in May 2008, whereby Norach was found guilty and given a seven-year sentence for failing to stop his soldiers killing Serbs, and Adimi was actually acquitted. So, yeah, the appeal went to the Supreme Court of Croatia, which rendered its verdict in 2009, and that confirmed the previous verdict, but commuted Norach's sentence by a year. The final appeals were rejected in 2010, so... Yeah. Ultimately, there was not a lot of accountability, I guess, for whatever happened in Croatia. Yeah, it was... really messy in Croatia, because it's probably fairly obvious that there was ethnic cleansing, but, like, actually proving it in front of a court became messier because, like, the evidence is mostly just burnt. Like... The way the Croatians took their scorched earth policy really, yeah, really, uh, paid off for them. Really paid off. Yeah, it did. The, the surgical gloves are a shaky piece of evidence, right? Like just things like that. And I, I think that, but I think that ultimately Medak was, uh, so yeah, it's important to talk about, but it's, uh, it, it kind of like for the UN itself, like for the UN involvement, like really kind of changed, like currently how peacekeeping is even really conceived of or at least in like the canadian sense right like yeah. the role that we decided to take in afghanistan was significantly different than we took that wasn't really 
peacekeeping. No, mode. but the reason, but it could have been. It like been. there was, there was a lot of motions or efforts, I guess, to make that a peacekeeping mission. Whereas the Canadians were like kind of over peacekeeping because Bosnia and Rwanda kind of proved that like, hey, if we don't have more, if we have a limited scope, like a really limited scope, then like, what's the point of us being here? Because we're basically just being shot at. We can't protect people that we want to protect. And yeah, sure, we can uncover the crimes later, but like we can't stop them from happening. So why are we here? Yeah. And that that legacy is still definitely lasting. There's still a lot of discussion about like what the the purpose of peacekeeping is. Does it still work? Is it still is it a thing when you're dealing with guerrilla forces? Like, is because you know the main the reason it had been successful in the past. I think I'm spitballing, but I think a big reason it had been successful in the past is because it was between two governmental like two militaries of real of countries not like militias of various kinds who were complete like nationalist forces essentially right like it's a little bit easier to deal with two armies yes there's more heavily armed people i guess but you also have more clear chains of like command and you know who's who and you're not trying to make friends with like five different rebel leaders and try and keep that balance right like i think that in a way peacekeepers and this conflict were a little bit doomed to fail. Like, mm-hmm. Well, what's even sadder, which is what I'm about to get into, is there's a good chance to actually prevent any of this from happening. Mm-hmm. Because all throughout 91 and 92, well, mostly between end of 91 and beginning of 92, the European community sent their envoy, named uh, a man named Peter Alexander Rupert Carrington, 6th Baron Carrington of the House of Lords of the United Kingdom, I'm just going to be calling AKA him... Lord Carrington. Yeah, I'm just calling him Lord Carrington. His idea was he summoned all of the leaders from the Six Republics to the International Court in The Hague of the Netherlands. He didn't invite the representatives from Kosovo or Volvodinia because by then those two autonomous provinces had actually been dissolved and reintegrated just as Serbia. Of course, there is heavy rhetoric between Tujman and Milosevic. For example, Tujman, he declared that Croatia had the full right to succeed from Yugoslavia due to ethnic, religious, and cultural differences between, like, the major differences between Croatia and the rest, like, and Serbia. In rebuttal, Milosevic said if Croatia is allowed to secede from Yugoslavia, then the Serbian Croats have every right to secede from Croatia. So, of course, this kind of went back and forth. And by this point, Carrington has just got his head in his palms. He was so desperate to prevent this conflict from escalating. So Carrington, just out of a whim, asked Milosevic if he'd be willing to accept independence of Croatia, quote, subject to the human rights of Serbs living outside of Serbia. And to everyone's surprise, especially Lord Carrington's, Milosevic said yes. So... Frantically, Carrington worked to get this verbal agreement in writing, and he wrote up a plan that detailed the independence of of the Yugoslav states. And it was written and submitted, but there was a problem. It said that all six republics would gain independence, and Milosevic refused to sign it because he did not want to dissolve Yugoslavia. But there was a clause in this. All of the republics had a vote, and they needed five votes to pass. Of course, Milosevic voted no for Serbia, 
but all the remaining republics voted yes, including Milosevic's ally in Montenegro. And people weren't really sure why. It turns out later they found out it's because Italy offered Montenegro financial aid if they voted yes. But Milosevic found this out and he blackmailed the Montenegrin leadership to change their vote. And so they did. So the plan failed. Frustrated with this, with these turn of events, Macedonia just straight up held a referendum asking, do you want Macedonia to be independent? It passed with 95.3% voting in favor and a massive turnout. And so Macedonia gained independence and they were all the only one of the republics to gain independence peacefully during the conflict. Also, by this point, Lord Carrington was frustrated and in August 1992, he and his envoy resigned from their position and returned to the United Kingdom. And unfortunately, that kind of helped escalate things into what we just talked about. As for subsequent events after this, the peak was really in 92, 93. After that, there were continued hostilities between Serbian and Croatian forces. Many of the towns that a majority of Serbians lived in were abandoned and then burnt to the ground by the Croatians to prevent the Serbians from coming back. There was just a mass exodus of Serbians going to Serbia and to areas in Bosnia. And most of them have never returned home. In 1995, just briefly, the Croatian military began operations, which resulted in the collapse and dissolution of Serbian Karenia, which effectively ended the war. But the reason why we're going to end it here is because much of this war spilt over into Bosnia. Yeah, I think some of the biggest and most important and most, like, memorable events I guess for a lot of people like when you think of this conflict you're really thinking about Bosnia and not what happened in Croatia for the most part well it's it's literally three ethnic groups none of them have a majority they all have around the same amount of people within this country Mm -hmm. all fighting yeah I I mean I think most popular culture depictions of this conflict really take place in Bosnia yeah as well well it's what is it it's Croats fighting Serbs fighting Bosniaks fighting Croats yeah that's how it is and it gets very fucking messy. Yes. I'm going to post a map to the Bosnia conflict just to show you that... I'm going to post a couple. One is the ethnic boundaries, or just where they are. One is where they wanted them to be, and one is where pretty, pretty much it is today. It's a fucking mess. It's a complete fucking mess. And you'll understand why it was so awful. Yeah. Gonna be a thing. It is uh, gonna be a big thing. We're <laughs> it's gonna be tough I'm yeah. researching, we know that. It's gonna be yeah. tough to pick like saying what happened because it is horrific. Mm-hmm. It's traumatic. And hence why the next episode is I'm calling it the failure of humanity, because it truly is a failure of humanity. Yeah. And also the difficulty of researching it is also part of what's leading to some of the delays that have caused in recording that we've had just some personal issues on my part, but also it's just a lot to research. You can't just uh, do it in one big, big go. It's, it's pretty difficult. Like it, it, it's taken longer, I think, than either of us necessarily anticipated in part because of its complexity, but also just the like human tragedy is really hard to cope with. It is. So yeah, as humans, like, it's, I, I, I would think it's, I would say it's probably safe to say that for both of us, this is something we're both learning a lot about that we've never really known before. It's a new experience. 
And uh, so it's been a little bit shocking as well. Like, you know, I think we both knew that things were bad and there was a lot of genocide and just general things like that. Because, I mean, you know, I kind of grew up with, like, the Milosevic trial and things like that, but never really understood exactly what had happened. Outside of a couple of events, like, famous ones. But I think just, like, the overall tragedy of the entire conflict is something that's kind of, like, caught both of us by... Surprise. Yeah. Well, put it this way. The trials are still going on. Yeah. We're going to talk about that probably in the last episode. Yeah. But put that into perspective. Yeah. 20 years ago, and the, these trials are still ongoing. And I'll explain why they take so long for these trials, because I know a lot of people are asking why are the trials still going on? Why are they taking so long? I, we will explain that. I mean, the most important thing to remember just to note about any trial is that it's not like TV where trials happen, you know, fast. Yeah, exactly. But these are going on longer than... But with that said, I think we're going to end it there. Yeah. And uh, we're going to be back in a couple weeks with Bosnia. That's... Yeah. Anyway, we'll be back with Bosnia and Herzegovina. And uh, also a friendly reminder that we do have a Patreon and we do really want your support. Yep, we do. So I'm going to pander for a minute. Um... (laughs) (laughs) What you actually get with Patreon is it's not that you're just lining our pockets, because trust me, you're not. Uh, it actually, all the money would go back into the podcast for things like equipment. Uh, as if you follow us on Instagram or Facebook, you'll see that currently my mic is being held together, or is being held up by a stack of books. So if you want to see us use real mic stands, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We're going to be using it to buy mic stands. I'm going to buy not just one, but two new microphones. Then we can have people on. Then we got people. We have guests. Um, we actually have get. We actually have got guests in mind and people who want to be part of this. So it's not just us imagining it. It actually can be a thing. We're also released. Going to be starting a couple new series. One I will announce today is called uh, "Other Nonsense," where we just. The whole premise is we get to talk about whatever the fuck we want. And that'll be more like conversation format. A lot less like. I mean, we're trying to keep these not like lectures, but at some point they are a little bit because we just have to get through the information. Other nonsense will just be a topic that we decide to chat about for an hour or so. It might not even just be a topic. We just yeah. like just get there and be like, yeah, so how's it going? And yeah, just kind of go just from chat. there. Just chat. Because we do, we do have legendary conversations. Think Joe Rogan, but more awkward. Yeah. <laughs> Less associated with weird shit like the UFC. Yeah. That's, um, that's going to be a monthly <laughs> show. So uh, we're only going to be releasing episodes once a month. First episode's going to be completely free. Uh, we're probably going to get that in November. Yeah. Depends. on. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> and then after that, it's going to be monthly, and it's just going to be released for paying patrons. Yeah. And also, we, uh, Jonah's already posted a paper on Patreon for Brian, our only subscriber currently. Thanks, Brian. We have to mention Brian. And... Uh, I'm going to shortly post post one as well, so you can have something else to read, Brian. You're welcome. Um, and anybody else who decides to subscribe, just decides to subscribe, that's what you get with paid content. If you're subscribing, helping us create better things, we give you extra stuff. So uh, please. <laughs> Another thing to pander: if you enjoy the show, please give us a rating on Facebook and on iTunes, and also give us a review. Yeah, please. Because that'll help us boost our page. And even just like bare minimum, if you follow us on Facebook or Instagram, like please consider dropping us a comment or liking our posts. Um, 
Facebook and Instagram, well, now that Instagram's owned by Facebook, um, are run by algorithms, and their algorithms tend to, which means that when we post something on Facebook or Instagram, you might not be able to see it. Like, they limit the number of people who actually see it, and the only reason, the only way more people see it, I think, like, the percentage sometimes is, like, 20% of your followers, like, (laughs) it's not that many people, and uh, the more you engage with something, the more likely you are to see it, so if you like our posts... And you like us, which we really hope you do at this point. Um, if you don't, well, I don't know why you're still listening. Uh, then please try and interact with some of our posts and help us help you get information, I guess. Um, help us educate you. Yeah, please. We'd appreciate that. Also, so. yeah, I just got to point this out. Tara, did you see Tara's yeah, comment? Tara's, Tara gave us two on fires and a thumbs up is what so I Panda said. So Story is lit. Is the uh, is lit. And then she said, which which translates to mind blown five stars. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Like that's one of the best reviews we could ever get. She should probably post that on iTunes. I would love you to post that on iTunes. Tara is like one of my, Tara is my best friend because I've known her for 10 plus years. Preferably with those emojis if iTunes lets you. Please. Well, yeah. Post five stars and then two flame, two on fires and a thumbs up in the review. Because Panda Story is lit fam. Thank you. Who was the Who was it that gave us our review already? Uh, my friend Matt Ratterberg in Lethbridge. Matt, thank you so much for that. We love you. He's also a sound engineer and musician, so devs check out some of his stuff because he's pretty cool. Who? <laughs> Not pandering, you think? Yeah, I think okay. we've pandered enough for now. Perfect. And pandering so, on Panhistoria. Just another quick thing. Yeah, we'll be back with Bosnia in a couple weeks. Expect that episode to be long. I don't yeah. know. I don't think it'll be Korean more long, but it will be long, and I'm not going to cut it into two parts. No, I think it's best if we just power through that. So, anyway, thank you so much. Until this is next time. yeah. Until next time, this is Jonah and Lindsay. Thank you guys. <laughs>